Two recent Supreme Court decisions changed the calculus for contractors when it comes to dealing with the False Claims Act. The court altered long-standing definitions of reckless disregard and deliberate ignorance, and it gave the government more discretion over dismissing whistleblower cases under the False Claims Act. For some analysis, we turn to longtime procurement attorney, now a partner at Center Law, Alan Chavotkin. Alan, good to have you in studio. Always a pleasure, Tom. And let's talk about the super value case first, which changed some of these definitions of what you knew and when you knew it. What's going on here? Well, if beg me to just give you a little tutorial for some of your listeners who may not be as steeped in the False Claims Act as you are. The False Claims Act provides that any person who knowingly submits or causes to submit a false claim to the government is liable for damages up to three times the government's damages. In addition to allowing the government to pursue perpetrators of fraud on its own, the False Claims Act allows private citizens to file suit on behalf of the government. And, and that's what sometimes they call called key tam. key tam suits or relators. And they uh, go back to the civil, the Middle Ages, actually. Well, yeah, very much. Key and tam. the original uh, False Claims Act was uh, 1863, the so-called Lincoln Law, because of, uh, of contractor fraud even back then. Uh, so these relators can then pursue the litigation on behalf of the government. And they can get then a a portion of the recovery, uh, in some cases a significant re- recovery, a portion of it. Uh, but there are numerous procedural actions uh, that they have to take that the law imposes on these relators because the suit is actually brought in the name of the United States government. Uh, so you've heard me say for years that in government contracting, words matter. And in the context of the False Claims Act, almost every word and paragraph and section uh, has been litigated because of the actions. I think even the Supreme Court called it a thicket in its because uh, I read that decision, a couple of those decisions, and they pack a lot into 37 pages. Well, they do. Uh, and part of the thicket has been caused by the Supreme Court themselves. And so that leads us to this uh, super value case. You've heard me say, and uh, some of our listeners who are of a certain age might remember the catchphrase from Senator Howard Baker during the 1973 Watergate uh, hearings about President Nixon. What did the president know and when did he know it? Uh, Well, that's really a good set of questions to look at this super value case. It's actually a combination, two cases that were uh, unanimously decided by the Supreme Court on June 1st. Uh, The False Claims Act uh, says, as you alluded to, that there has to be a knowing violation, and it can be one of three tests. Did the defendant have actual knowledge of the falsity? Did the defendant act in deliberate ignorance of the truth, or did it act in reckless disregard of the truth or falsity? And so earlier courts had, uh, appeals courts had said that the standard for judging that knowledge was uh, objective reasonableness. Uh, that is, did anybody really believe that that uh, rule or regulation or law could be truthful and that there was no action or guidance from the government that told you otherwise? The Supreme Court rejected that objective reasonableness test and what it termed subjective beliefs. And I'd like to say, read a one sentence from the decision. The court said, what matters for an FCA case is whether the defendant knew the claim was false when submitting the claim. Not afterwards, not what others thought, but did the defendant know the claim? And so that's the heart of this decision. So super value then got off the hook because its officers did not know of the violation when they submitted a claim? Well, 
SuperValue got off the hook at this point, but the court didn't address whether SuperValue knew or not, sent it back to the Seventh Circuit Court to decide whether the facts of that case now aligned with the timing of what they knew and when they knew it. Sure. So let me ask you just one question about the implications. So say now the Supreme Court says it only matters what you knew when you submitted that claim. Suppose you submit the claim, takes the government some time to pay a bill, and you find out, whoops, we overcharged. This labor rate was wrong. What should a company do? Well, that's a slightly different case because now you overcharging is different than the knowledge of whether that claim itself was false. And so my advice is always notify the government immediately, pay it back, and sort through then whether that labor rate was true or false and whether the billing was accurate or not. Right. So in the case of the supervalued decision, then it really more affects the whistleblower-type cases and whether a whistleblower can say, well, they knew about this all along. Exactly right. Exactly right. Again, it's not what somebody else knew. It's not two years later we found out that that was true. No, it's what did the defendant know at the time that they submitted that claim. Now, that may be hard to prove, and that's going to be a burden on the whistleblowers to to get at that. That was my question. It's tougher on whistleblowers now to bring these types of cases. It, it will be harder, and proof is going to be hard. Uh, one of the questions we're, we're asking ourselves is, how do you prove what a defendant knew? What does a company know? Is it what the CEO believed? Is it a committee of three, six, 200? So lots of debate yet to take place about this knowledge at the time the submission is made. We're speaking with Alan Chavotkin. He's a partner at the Center Law Group. I guess the old adage applies, a penny's worth of compliance can save you dollars worth of trouble later on. Very much so. Very much so. So, uh, you know, you can always ask the government for clarity or if there's an ambiguity in a regulation or uh, or a process. They may or may not tell you. But at least if you're raising those questions, you're providing some contemporaneous record that uh, what you believe that to be. Uh, you can always document what you believe that record to be. Ask competent lawyers in that subject matter what their opinion is. All of those go to the state of mind, if you will, at the time the submission is made. All right. And then with respect to the key TAM cases, there the Supreme Court had a – was an eight-to-one decision. They said when a – when the Justice Department could come into a key TAM case and dismiss it, and they said they can have it dismissed after the silent period, which has traditionally been the window of opportunity. That's exactly right. I mentioned earlier there are numerous procedural issues that the key TAM complainant has to go through, and the original complaint is filed under seal. That means it's secret, uh, filed with the court. It's not public at the time, and it gives the Justice Department a chance to evaluate the merits of the case. If they take over the case, then the government controls the litigation and end the discussion. The government can pursue it. The government can dismiss it, and there's no question. But the government can also decline to take over a case and allow the relator to continue with the litigation. So the case in front of the Supreme Court was after the Justice Department declined. This was another health care case. Justice Department initially declined, and after five years of litigation, Justice Department asked to come back in and dismiss the case. And what the Supreme Court said is, no, you don't have an absolute right to dismiss cases. First, you have to ask to come back in to intervene in the case at whatever stage it is. And then if the district court agrees, then 
the district court can assess whether to uh, dismiss the case. But it was interesting, the Supreme Court made an interesting comment. It said that once the government is given permission, the court, the district court, must evaluate any request for dismissal over the relator's objections. And it should be honored, quote, in all but the most exceptional cases, even if the relator presents a credible assessment to the contrary. So strong preference for dismissal if the government requests it, even if it comes later. Uh, Interesting in this case, you said eight to one is absolutely right. And the dissent came from Justice Thomas, who had written the majority opinion in the SuperValue case. And Justice Thomas's view was that the government only gets one chance to decide right at the beginning. They don't get a second chance or a third chance or a fourth sure. chance. One chance only. Well, how uh, often does the Justice Department actually get into the situation? Do they usually dismiss them in the period that it's sealed, or do they try to jump in later? If I recall correctly, Justice said that the second round of interventions, fairly rare, 30 to 40 times over, you know, in a period of time when they've sought to come back in, and usually for extraordinary circumstances. In this case, Polanski case, the dismissal, there were some issues about privilege issues that they thought overrode the underlying value of the case. Yeah, so good or bad for whistleblowers in this case? Well, good or bad for whistleblowers, bad for lawyers, because this could terminate a case long, even while the litigation is ongoing. And in this case, it was five years. Uh, But a relator could be out a lot of money and effort if five years later, justice says, could be a different administration, you know, and likely will be in five years and say, sorry, that's the end yep. of it. Our standards have changed. Our basis for for uh, pursuing this case has changed than it was or letting you take it on. Or the relator could very well have not done a good job of pursuing the litigation. And so any number of issues might arise that, that might trigger this. But it's interesting that uh, both sides got a little bit. The Justice Department lost on automatic withdrawal, automatic dismissal, but the court gave the Justice Department wide authority to uh, seek dismissal for appropriate reasons. And a final question. I talked to Steve Cohn of D.C., a lawyer who defends whistleblowers, and he says that the dissent by Justice Thomas, that one vote, contained the seed of a constitutional challenge to the whole Keetam case apparatus in the first place. Is that your sense of the reading of this? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it is very clear. Justice Thomas, actually not only Justice Thomas, who was the dissenter, but he was joined by Justice Kavanaugh and Barrett. And they raised the question of whether the entire scheme of permitting these relator cases is constitutional. They raised that. It's not part of the decision in this case. They raised it signaling that they'd be interested in taking that issue on some point later. Yeah, there's nothing ever dormant or settled in this business, is there? Rarely. Alan Chavotkin is a partner at the Center Law Group. Thanks so much for joining me. Always a pleasure, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello. 
and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. Uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arena. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff. Okay. Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that. But I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right. And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on. Absolutely. Them. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, 
and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely casts the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, the, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed. uh, And, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice that whole approach because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's, it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's, it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you're asking for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do. But integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay. I, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. 
So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. That's just mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.